Well, good morning, friends. I'm Pastor Brandon. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to uh, 1 Corinthians 6. We're continuing our series this morning that we've been working through called Strangers and Exiles, uh, taking time to ask the question, how does the good news of Jesus uh, help us navigate some of the challenging and and, uh, confusing, divisive issues that we face in our ever-changing world? And this morning we come to a subject that is equally familiar and foreign at the same time what's called expressive individualism. Now, it's, it sounds pretty foreign because it's a big word, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a philosophical term. In fact, this may be the first time some of you have ever heard that phrase before. It's, it's certainly not the kind of uh, word you use around the water cooler or, or at work or at school in, in casual conversation. So it seems pretty foreign, but at the same time, it is also incredibly familiar because it refers to the very cultural air we breathe. It, 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 we might not know the term, but we know what it's talking about. It's the way the world works today, the common sense wisdom of our age. Uh, even if you don't know the phrase expressive individualism, uh, tell me if you've heard any of these phrases before. Follow your heart. Right? Chase your dreams. You do you. You are enough. Above all else, be true to yourself. Like We know those phrases, right? And that's what we're talking about when we talk about expressive individualism. It's this collective advice of our age that tells us that the purpose of life is to discover yourself by looking deep down and then express yourself to the world no matter what anyone else, family members, friends, colleagues, previous generations, religious institutions, no matter what anyone else says. You can, you know, this is is a bit of a cheap shot, but you can think of virtually any Disney movie today or in the last few decades, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the basic storyline or any number of, of popular books or novels or Netflix series. Every story today is about self-discovery, right? Finding and forging your self-identity by shutting out all of the opposing voices and, and freeing yourselves, breaking the shackles of society's expectations. You do you. I mean, you can think of Frozen or Mulan or Moana or The Little Mermaid or Zootopia or Encanto or Luca. And I love all of those movies, but, but it's all the same plot, right? <laughs> this heroic journey of self-discovery. And, and the point is not to say, you know, poor Disney movies. Again, I love those things. The point is simply to illustrate how mainstream these ideas are. They, they form so many of the stories we tell. And we love these stories because that's our story too. Or at least it's supposed to be, according to the wisdom of the age. And it's important to consider this subject, and especially how the gospel of Jesus helps us understand and respond to it. Uh, Because so much of everyday life today is shaped by this narrative. It's what we teach our kids from the earliest of ages, right? You can be anything you want to be when you grow up. 
It's what we tell our graduating seniors every May. Go chase your dreams. Follow your hearts. It's why so many people face midlife crises. Because they chased their dreams and followed their hearts and they couldn't find them. Or they did and it didn't actually satisfy. It didn't last. It's why so many marriages fall apart. If the most important thing in the world is to find myself and be happy, then anyone in my life who's not contributing to that, as I define it, is disposable and replaceable. You have to put yourself first. It's why there's so much confusion today in our world around sexuality and gender identity, the topics we'll touch on the next two weeks. If I'm the author of my own life... Well, then nobody else can tell me what is right and what is wrong, what is good or what I want, not my parents, not my friends, not even my own body, and certainly not God above. So how does the gospel of Jesus give us the clarity that we need, the guidance, the wisdom for both understanding this thing called expressive individualism, this this myth of our, of our modern age, and, and, and not just to understand it, but to respond to it with both the truth and grace of the gospel. Well, that brings us to chapter 6 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where he addresses what we might call the myth of self-ownership, the myth of self-ownership. Now, if you're familiar uh, even a little bit with the New Testament, you'll probably remember that the church in ancient ancient Corinth was a bit of a mess. Uh, They were constantly, uh, they'd become divided by selfish interests, they'd become deluded by worldly concerns, and, and one of the major contributing factors to their, their spiritual immaturity and to their just kind of unbridled tolerance of sin among them, one of the major contributing factors was the assumption that they somehow belonged to themselves. Self-ownership. They, they were their own. That being free in Christ meant they were their own and therefore free to do whatever they wanted to do, particularly whatever they wanted to do with their bodies amid the temptations of, of sexual immorality and fornication. That's what Paul's addressing here in the larger passage uh, uh, from which the verses we read earlier come from, chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. And and you can see this myth of self-ownership, the idea that we belong to ourselves, you can see it showing up in the logic of the Corinthians from the very first verse in this passage. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And, and, and when Paul says all things are, are lawful for me here, what he's doing is he's quoting or anticipating the logic of the Corinthians. That's why our translators put quotes around that phrase, right? These words or ideas belong to the Corinthians. And so he's quoting their idea and then correcting it or responding to it. All things are lawful for me, but... Not all things are beneficial for you. I will be mastered by none. And when the Corinthians are saying, what they're saying with that phrase, all things are lawful for me or permissible for me, it's basically that in Christ, I have the right to do whatever I want. 
That's the logic of their self-ownership. I, I set my own rules. I am a law to myself. And, and how, do I, how do I establish those rules? How do I choose them? Well, based on my own desires, my hunger, my appetite. That's what we see in verse 13, where, again, Paul quotes the Corinthians' logic and then later responds. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. I I take the Corinthians' quote to the end of the sentence there. So according to their wisdom, the body is meant to be fed, right? It, It exists for temporary pleasure, Food is for the stomach, stomach's for the food, both of them are going to die eventually, eat, drink, and be merry, right? The body's meant to be fed, whether with food, which is, again, the proverb they're kind of uh, using, or sex, which is what they're actually talking about with the proverb. By their logic, because Christ has set me free from the law, there are therefore now no restrictions, Everything is back on the menu. Whatever we desire, their bodies exist to be satisfied and to glorify themselves. Everything's back on the menu. Even fornication and visiting prostitutes, which is what they were doing and what Paul corrects them for as he continues the rest of verse 13. The body's not meant for sexual immorality or fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Our bodies do not exist for temporary pleasure. They have an eternal purpose in serving the Lord. And so, where did the Corinthians go so massively wrong? Like, how how do they wind up with such a gross misapplication of the gospel? Where do they get the idea that they can live however they want? Well, it's the assumption that they belong to themselves now. As if Christ purchased them out of slavery simply to gain some new autonomous freedom in which they face the world on their own. It's frankly, when you step back and think about it, it is not at all unlike the modern myth of self-ownership that dominates our culture today. This, this sense of, it's what Alan Noble uh, describes with the mantra, I am my own and I belong to myself. Like that is the creed of our modern age, which Noble argues is the fundamental lie of, modern, of modernity, that we are our own. But that's what expressive individualism tells us, that you are your own and you belong to yourself which might sound kind of liberating for some of us. It might even sound exhilarating for some of us. Yet, as, as Noble explains uh, in his book aptly titled, You Are Not Your Own, uh, this myth of self-ownership comes at a great price. Once I'm liberated from all of the social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge me or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. And this burden manifests itself in a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression. And and so we begin this 
heroic journey of self-discovery and self-expression that so many of us are, are on sometimes without even realizing that's what we're doing. Uh, Trevin Wax, uh, in his book called Rethink Yourself, which if you're looking for like just a, a wonderful, simple, clear starting point to wrap your head around this thing called expressive individualism and how the gospel speaks to it, that's where I would start. Trevin Wax's book, Rethink Yourself. Uh, but he, he kind of unpacks this process for us, how the world tells us to find meaning and fulfillment today. The way you find fulfillment in life is to look inside yourself as an individual and determine what is unique about you, who you are deep down. You're responsible for defining yourself. No one else can do that for you. And, and the way you define yourself, defining yourself, it requires that you get in touch with the deepest desires of your heart. That's where you go to find your identity. It's only when you discover your deepest desires that you can be assured of your identity and purpose in life. You are what you want, in other words. And, and once you've discovered your desires and defined your identity accordingly, then it's time to put them on display to show the world who you truly are, to find people who will celebrate what it is that makes you unique. So even when we discover our, our true self or create our own identity, we still need some kind of external validation. And so we have to express ourselves. Yet, as you go through life and find yourself changing, and, and whenever our desires shift, that image that we want to put on display for others, that might shift as well. So you might reach a point in life where you feel inauthentic. I'm, I'm not being authentic enough. Or maybe you once felt special and unique, but now you realize everybody else is just like you. And so you begin a process of reinvention, right? By looking deep within yourself once more until you come up with a new design, a new you to be true to. This is the obligation of expressive individualism, of self-ownership. If I am my own and I belong to myself, then it's not just that I can define myself and, and by my desires and display it to the world. It's that I must. I have to do this because that's the way the world works. To put it in religious terms, uh, again, to, to quote Wax here, if the first and greatest commandment of the modern age is be yourself, then the unforgivable sin is to be false or to wilt before some external benchmark that others like the church might foist upon you. Thus, the solution is not repentance, but reassertion. Stand up and show them who you are. Make them see who you are, who you say you are. And anyone who stands in your way or who does not affirm your own chosen self-identity, then you need to get rid of them. They're toxic. They're harmful. You do you. And yet, to complicate matters even further, everyone else is doing the exact same thing at the exact same time. So it's not like it's just me over in my corner trying to find myself and then show it to the world. Everyone else 
is doing the same thing. We are all on a private journey of self-discovery and self-expression so, so that at times, as, as Noble puts it, modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are, which is a fairly accurate description of social media, right? We're all in the same room shouting our own names lest we get overlooked, right? I am my own, and I belong to myself. My desires shape my identity, and I display that to the world. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. All things are lawful for me. But not everything is good for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will be enslaved to nothing. The cold, hard reality of expressive individualism is that what looks and feels like freedom is, in fact, slavery. That's what it is. To assert my self-ownership is to secure my own defeat. Because... Not everything we give ourselves permission to do is actually good for us, right? And we know that's true. As much as we claim the autonomy to actually decide for ourselves what is good or what is right, we know that's true. I I may have the freedom to eat all the ice cream in the world I want to eat. That doesn't mean it's a good idea. In fact, it's a terrible idea, right? (laughs) Nor are we able to keep under control every desire that we feed, Right? Some appetites are insatiable. You know, before long, we, before we realize that our appetite no longer serves us, we're serving our appetite as it slowly consumes us. Our desires deceive us. Our display flickers and fades. Our journey of self-discovery leaves us empty because none of us have the virtue or the power to actually pull it off in any way that actually lasts or satisfies. And whether we acknowledge it or not, our vain pursuit ultimately puts us at odds with the God who made us. Like, that's a huge factor hanging in the background of all of this. As much as we might claim to be a law to ourselves with the exclusive right to decide what is good and what is right and what is true, none of that changes the fact that we will all stand before God's throne in the end. None of it. If I get pulled over for speeding, I may inform the officer that, actually, sir, I'm the captain of my own destiny, so I'm I'm just following my heart right now. I'm still going to get a ticket, right? As much as I assert my own autonomy, that doesn't change reality. So it is that our journeys of self-discovery are often driven by self-delusion. You put it all in theological terms, and, and expressive individualism is nothing more than the nightmare that we read about in Romans chapter 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, their desires, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So how does the gospel of Jesus answer the delusion of expressive individualism? I mean, if the, if the common sense wisdom of our age is actually foolishness, how does the person and work of Christ show us a better way? Well, Paul's answer to the myth of self-ownership is to remind us that that's exactly what it is. It is a myth. You are not your own. Rather, you belong to God, and as Christians, you have been bought with a price. True freedom and lasting satisfaction comes from belonging to Christ. And that's what we see as, as Paul moves forward in the chapter. This is the point he makes to the church in several ways. Uh, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There's a, a connection, an intimacy, a belonging there. Or verse 17, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Or verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God? And there's a sense in which all humanity belonged to God, right? We were all made by him and for him. We will all stand before him in the end. But there is a there's a deeper sense of belonging that he invites us into through faith in Christ. And that's what Paul's emphasizing here again and again as he focuses on our spiritual union with Christ. We belong to him. We're united with him. To believe in him is to be joined with him. And if we're joined with him, then feeding ungodly hungers like sexual immorality or fornication the Corinthians were doing, or, or discovering our desires and, and pursuing them at all costs, using our bodies for our own glorification or satisfaction, these are neither acceptable nor honorable nor satisfying ways to live. Every single one of them, they, they dishonor God, they defile his presence as the one who dwells within us, and they ultimately damage us. But if I can't follow my heart or fulfill my desires, how will I ever find myself or be happy? Our true identity and lasting happiness does not come from asserting my own self-ownership, but from joyfully losing myself because I belong to Christ. That's where our identity, that's where our joy ultimately comes. That's Paul's conclusion this is who you are. This is your hope. Verse 19, middle of verse 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. For as, as much as we spend our lives trying to discover ourselves or, or display ourselves so as to cobble together some sort of meaningful existence, some way of recognizing our value, Jesus has already told us how valuable we are. Valuable enough 
to spend his own blood to make us his own. That's how valuable we are in the sight of Christ, to purchase us for himself. And, and, and don't miss the significance there. It's not just a sign of how valuable we are, what he was willing to spend, but how gracious and sufficient he is. He's able to do that. He's willing to do that. Left to ourselves, we, we're not just wasting our energy in a journey of self-discovery that will ultimately let us down. Uh, left to ourselves, we're actually heaping up guilt and sin in our, in our little journey of self-discovery. Sin that must be punished. And apart from Christ, we are always exchanging the truth about God and, and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. If, if Jesus is not our master, then we are enslaved to sin and death, whether we realize it or not. And every good thing we do is coming out of that slavery, even. And no amount of self-discovery or self-expression can undo that. But when Paul says, we have been bought with a price, he's telling us that Christ has paid our debt in full. The debt to set us free from that sin and death that we were once enslaved to. The punishment that we deserve for our sin was poured out on him in our place so that through faith in him, we could be set free. And the price of our freedom was the precious blood of Christ, the the precious blood of Christ, that like a lamb without blemish or spot. In our chapter, Paul uses the imagery of a slave market to help us understand just what we've been rescued from, right? So you can picture it. There we are, chained to our sin, simultaneously gorged on self-indulgence and emaciated from sin's deceitfulness. And along comes Christ, to free us. We're hopelessly bound and our Savior shows up to purchase us and he does so by giving his life in exchange for ours. He buys us at the price of his own precious blood and he rescues us not just so that we can pursue our own devices, which would ultimately just land us right back on the slavery block. No, he rescues us he purchases us for his own kingdom. He redeems us for his own family. He reclaims us for our created purpose, for God's design that we might display his glory with desires sanctified by his spirit. Brothers and sisters, true freedom and lasting satisfaction come from belonging to Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There's perhaps no greater summary of this truth than the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. And, and I want us to say this together this morning. You actually, you get to add your voice to the sermon today. I'm going to ask the question, and we'll all say the answer together. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. 
but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. That is good news, friends. That is incredible comfort and hope. That's, that is hope that no journey of self-discovery can ever provide. That is value that no amount of worldly affirmation can ever give you. The gospel of Jesus frees us from the rat race of expressive individualism. It liberates us from the myth of self-ownership. It anchors and secures me in the presence and power of God. So just think with me for a moment about the difference it makes to belong to Christ. Because I belong to Jesus, I don't have to justify my existence. Think about that freedom. I mean, the reality is I've, I've messed up in this world and I will continue to mess up. Many of my best efforts and intentions will produce mediocre results. It's just the truth, right? But my righteousness, my value, the sum of my life are not based on what I can do, but on what Christ has already done for me. He is my justification. Because I belong to him, I don't have to justify myself. I'm secure in Christ. Because I belong to Jesus, I don't have to find myself or discover my identity. I simply get to listen to him. He tells me who I am. Made in his image, inherently valuable, designed for his purposes, which is true for all humanity. But for the Christian, it gets even better. You are beloved. You are chosen. You are rescued, redeemed, forgiven. You are a child of God, united with Christ, a temple of the Holy Spirit, a people for his own possession. That is who you are. God's the one who tells you who you are. Because I belong to Jesus, I'm no longer enslaved to my desires. I can say no to the desires of my heart that deceive me and that would lead me astray from Christ. As Paul says in Titus 2, verses 11 to 12, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
Because I belong to Christ, I am free to follow his good design rather than to make up my own foolish rules. Because I belong to Jesus, I don't have to clamor or compete for attention in displaying myself. Think about that. How much time and energy we spend displaying ourselves to the world while we're busy shouting our name in a room with billions of other people, he has our name engraved on the palm of his hand where it is always visible. He is always mindful of us. We don't have to clamor for attention in Christ. Because I belong to Jesus, I don't have to constantly reinvent myself. My identity is confirmed. My future is secure. My community and relationships are fixed, not by my own uniqueness or what anybody thinks of me, but bought and bound by the blood of Christ. Because I belong to Jesus, I have a clear and wonderful purpose. My body, my life, my possessions, my relationships, my story, they do not exist for my own personal satisfaction or or glory, but for serving the Lord, for honoring Him and giving glory to Him, a service that can take all sorts of shapes and that can take me to all sorts of places as I follow His lead and, and depend upon His Spirit to serve. Because I belong to Jesus, I don't have to star in my own story. I'm content to play a supporting role in the story of Christ, to follow his word, to serve his mission, to joyfully lose myself because in Jesus, I have something so much better. As the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 3, which we heard earlier. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. True freedom and lasting satisfaction comes from belonging to Christ. Friends, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for the liberating, joyful truth of the gospel that sets us free. Not free to do whatever we want, Lord, but free to follow you, unhindered by the shackles of sin, strengthened by your spirit, guided by your word. Lord, give us the joy that comes from losing ourselves and being found in Christ. And Lord, may that joy, that freedom, that purpose radiate from your people to a lost and confused and dying world desperately in need of your grace. Lord, may we be faithful witnesses. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.